Welcome to Greenfish Blue Oceans, the podcast where stories about seafood are good for you and the oceans. I'm Maureen Barry. Hey guys, welcome to the XYZ program. Today, I'm tackling the last three letters of the alphabet in the five things you need to know kind of format, since these letters, like the previous episode, were really hard to fill in the seafood world. Today, I'm tackling Xeriscape, Yukon River, and Zones. I think you'll understand uh, after the episode how they all affect seafood, either directly or indirectly. Also, a little housekeeping note before I get started today, I want to remind you that today's program is the final episode for season one. Woohoo! Can't believe it's been an entire year. Season two begins in late January. So please join me and my co host. Yes, I have a co host. Woohoo! Um, Heather Tomasetti is a Miami based marine biologist and all around fish nerd. We're going to tackle some of the same topics I touched on in the A to Z format, but we'll take a deeper dive with a scientific bent. And I'm scheduling interviews now with fishermen, aquaculture farmers, and entrepreneurs all doing amazing work to keep our planet green and blue. Okay, so let's get on with the program. Hey guys, what's up and welcome to the X is for Xeriscape part of the program. So what is a Xeriscape? Not to be confused with Xeroscape. Xeriscape refers to uh, landscaping through the conservation of water. The term literally means dry landscape, but that doesn't mean no water or a boring landscape. And so, like I mentioned earlier, since this podcast is about stories that are good for you in the oceans, what does xeriscaping have to do with seafood? Well, I think the most important thing to consider about how xeriscape affects seafood is that when you, in traditional landscaping, the runoff from pesticides and chemicals um, associated with traditional landscaping is the problem. And so to help change that, uh, xeriscaping entered the landscape. Now, xeriscape landscaping isn't rocket science, but there are some things you need to know. And here is my five things you need to know about xeriscaping. One, no fertilizers or pesticides is the perfect solution to protect and preserve the earth, or one of them anyway. There's no nasty runoff into lakes and streams, which eventually merge into rivers and oceans, or seep into the ground. Two, xeriscaping saves water. I probably don't need to mention it, but I will. I think this is huge. In fact, I postulate that our greatest need, water, will become our most horrific problem in the future. Or maybe lack of water is the way to put it. I think it's already a problem. And I know it's not just me thinking that way. Scientists expect to see a fresh water, underground water shortage as soon as 2030. It's not too far away, kids. 
actually tackled this subject in my CS for Clams and Climate Change episode. Um, you can find more information about that. That actually happens to be one of my most popular episodes too. So you can find that on iTunes. C is for Clams and Climate Change. In the climate change part of the program, I talk a lot about the declining underground aquifers around the globe. But back to that list. Number three, xeriscaping is low maintenance. Who doesn't love that? We need more beauty and less fuss about how to get it. And that doesn't mean you have to sacrifice. So what's a xeriscape made of? Well, flowers, succulents, grasses, shrubs, bushes, and trees. Now, it's not like these plants don't need water. They just need less. And by using a drip irrigation system, you're going to preserve even more water. So check with your local nursery or your extension office to learn which plants and trees will thrive in your climate. And I put a link in the show notes to help you get started. Okay, number four, you're going to save money. How so? Well, watering a lawn costs money. I know. We have an underground irrigation system and a lawn. But for the past several years, we decided to let nature take its course on two-thirds of our lawn. The result means we have less curb appeal, but we aren't trying to sell our property. And we like the rustic natural look. We live in the woods after all. And it saves on the water bill. In addition, that means less mowing and no fertilizing. So we also save time. That's like a win-win. Okay, number five. Here we go. You cannot just start a zero escape without a plan. You need to know your zone, which species to plant, and how to group them to maximize your xeriscape and use less water. And that's it. So how does that help seafood? Well, in essence, we need water. Fish need water. Now, even though the fish don't use fresh water like we use for our plants, water is water. Let's go there. Okay, stick around for the Yukon River. Some cool stuff coming up. Hey guys, welcome back to the Why is for Yukon River part of the program. This is my favorite part of the program because it has to do with salmon. And you know me, the salmon cookbook woman. So I'm not going to blurb that until the end. I'm going to jump right into the list. Okay, here's the five things you need to know about the Yukon River. Number one, the Yukon River is the largest river in North America. It runs through British Columbia, Canada, and into Alaska. Number two, the name Yukon means white water river. And the glacial silt does make the waters of the river look white. I put a photo on the website so you can check that out, greenfishblueoceans.com. Three, the Yukon River is home to one of the most important and longest salmon runs in the world. Chinook, or king salmon, run from the Yukon River to the Bering Sea, 300 kilometers or 1,900 miles. Whew, that's a long way to go. <laughs> Number four, Chinook, or kings, are magnificent creatures, as if I had to tell you that. They're the largest of the Alaskan salmon species. Their flesh is thick, fatty, tender, and sweet. And for a fisherman, 
A fight with a king salmon is the stuff of dreams, or sometimes nightmares. Chinooks or kings spend their entire first year as fry in the Yukon River before they begin their journey to the sea. That's almost like a 4B, that little second half there. (laughs) Okay, number five. You can tell it's Friday, right? And the last episode, I'm sort of silly. Okay, number five. The Yukon River is home to the longest wooden fish ladder in North America, too, at a whopping 366 meters or 1,200 feet It helps migrating Chinook on the end of their epic journey. Have you ever seen a salmon run up a a wooden ladder? It's the coolest thing. Uh, We were in Alaska a couple years ago in in Sitka, and um, I was just totally amazed that these fish use these ladders to get up. It's very cool. Now, as a side note, here comes that blurb from my cookbook, if you love to eat salmon, my cookbook, Salmon from Market to Plate, the ebook version, is discounted to $2.99 through January 2018 to help you jumpstart your healthy eating and healthy lifestyle, if that's one of your goals um, or resolutions for the new year. So Salmon from Market to Plate is available wherever you buy books online. Now you can also get a print copy too, um, also available wherever you buy books online, but it's not $2.99. All right, so stick around as I wrap up season one with Z is for zones and a few words more about season two. Hey guys, welcome back to the Z is for zones part of the program. Okay, so what do I mean when I talk about zones? regarding seafood in the oceans? Well, mostly this is about the oceans. And so, of course, it has to do a little bit with seafood. In the ocean, there are two types of zones, climate zones and oceanic zones. There are four major climate zones on Earth based on temperature. There's the tropical zone found in the Western Atlantic Ocean, for instance. There's the warm temperate zone found in the Greek islands, for instance. The cold temperate zone is found in like the Scandinavia area. And the polar zone, of course, is found in Antarctica. Of course, if you consult NOAA, you'll find these zones also have fancy scientific Latin names. But for the purposes of this episode, it's Friday. It's the last episode. I'm not going to try to butcher those scientific names. I'm just sticking with the simple. Okay, so the um, those are the climate zones. So the oceanic zones, I am going to go ahead and use the Latin name. Um, the oceanic zones are based on water density and depth. So the first zone is the epipelagic or euphotic zone, also called the sunlight zone. It ranges from the surface to about six, little over 600 feet. This is where most marine species live. 90%, in fact, live in this tropical temperate zone, from the surface down. Sunlight performs photosynthesis for plants and keeps the water temperatures warm and cozy so marine life can thrive. Now the next zone is the mesopelagic or twilight zone from that 600 feet down to about 3,300 feet. Little sunlight permeates this water. This is where bioluminescence lives among strange and wonderful creatures. 
In the bathypelagic zone, or the midnight zone, which ranges from like 3,300 to 13,000 feet, the water pressure is intense. The only light comes from the creatures themselves, although sperm whales are known to dive to this depth to find food. The abyssopelagic, or the abyss, extends from 13,000 to about 20,000 feet. There's no light and the water temperatures are freezing. There are some basket stars and squid at this crushing level. Lastly, we enter the Hadalpalakic zone, the area of the ocean that extends from 20,000 feet to the deepest depths of the ocean, where the infamous Mariana Trench lies off the coast of Japan. Within these deep, dark, impenetrable waters live tube worms and starfish, and recently discovered in early 2017 was the Mariana snailfish, a bizarre, scaleless, pink, translucent fish. There are plenty of snailfish in these deep waters, but this particular snailfish is found at that crushing pressure, suggesting a robust biodiversity previously unknown. You can find out more about the Mariana Trench on my last episode, UVW urchins, volcanoes, and wild fish. I put a link in the show notes for you on the website at greenfishblueoceans.com. There's so much that we don't know about the deepest recesses of our oceans yet, and there's plenty of opportunity to learn. So I'm excited about the future. Maybe one day ocean exploration will be just as robust as space exploration. All right, and that's a wrap for season one of Greenfish Blue Oceans. Thank you so much for listening throughout the year. This has been a huge learning experience for me. I appreciate you putting up with my stutter, my lisp, my butchering the Latin words, and just coming along for the ride to see where this is taking me. And so in season two, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to have a co-host and I'm very excited and I hope you'll join us and join the conversation. You can find us on Twitter at GFBO podcast and I have a website greenfishblueoceans.com. Certainly you can always reach out to me at marinecberry at gmail.com or hit me up on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'd love to connect and see what you're interested in talking about or if you have any questions. All right. I look forward to talking with you next year. Happy New Year, you guys. I'm welcoming 2018 with open arms. Talk soon. I'm Maureen Barry. This is Greenfish Blue Oceans.